If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. Hello and welcome to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine, Britain's best-selling history magazine. I'm Ellie Cawthorn. We often focus on the views that we can see through windows. But what about the windows themselves? As cultural sociologist Rachel Hurdley explored in her recent BBC Radio 4 documentary, The Hidden History of the Window, they're an element of buildings that can reveal much about our pasts, from living conditions and architectural styles to wider issues of defence, politics and social change. This is a subject that Rachel recently wrote about for the November issue of BBC History magazine, and our deputy editor, Matt Elton, caught up with her to find out more. We're talking on a particularly depressing early autumn day. How did the decision come about to focus on the thing that we can see all this weather through, through, through the window, if you like? I suppose it's the way in which all these strange ideas come about, you know, on a day like this, looking out of the window, looking at the view, and then suddenly realising, actually, there's something between me and that view, and I don't know very much about it. So the producer, Louise Adamson, and I had one of our little chats that we have about our crazier ideas and did some research into the history of windows and thought, wow, you know, like all of these rarely notice spaces. There is so much to think about when it comes to the history of windows and what's happening with windows today. Mm. I think that's really interesting because we might think about the house itself, we might think about the view through the window, but we don't often spend a lot of time thinking about the window itself. Um, In terms of tracing this history, is there a point at which we can sort of mark the first use of the window? Is that too an abstract concept? Well, way back, there was the idea of the the wind eye, which comes from the Vikings, where there would be openings, obviously, from houses, but they'd be very drafty. They wouldn't particularly let light in. And one of the reasons for having these openings was, of course, to let the smoke out from the central fires. Um, In terms of the British window, It's hard to say, really. It depends on how you define a window. The Romans made glass. That technology wasn't particularly picked up on by the British, partly because the glass technology had disappeared. Um, And the question is, you know, when we start to get castle windows, for example, the Normans, uh, they would have been open or they would have been shuttered up. Um, But... When we get to arrow slits, do we count those as windows when we're thinking about defensive architecture? When does a window become a window rather than just an opening in the wall? Yes. Um, So you mentioned castles there. Are there specific examples of windows in castles that we can look to as being particularly uh, pivotal? 
I think everyone, depending on where they live and which castles they've visited, would point to some particularly splendid window. What's interesting about windows in castles is that we tend to think about castles as being fortresses, really. Um, And that might have been the case, say, with the Edwardian castles in Wales that were there to stop the Welsh taking their country back. But once you get to medieval castles, the windows there are really to portray wealth. These were luxurious places to live. And I was really impressed by the the windows that we saw in the Great Hall at Chepstow. Although the glass itself has gone, being told how People would sit in the window seats there. You know, just the fact that there are window seats there show that this is where people used to sit, gaze at the view, do their reading. And these did have glass in the upper half, but but the bottom half, it, it's really about imagining what would have been there, that they used to have these gloriously painted shutters that would go there. So even in the dark, with just the firelight and the candlelight, the windows were there for display as part of this richly furnished interior. That's really evocative, that sense of what it must have been like to sit with that window next to you. Oh, yes, yes. And I think if you look at any castle, I know going to Castellcourt, which is near Cardiff, which the Earl of Bute built as as a homage, really, to medieval castles. There you have these splendid recesses with these comfortable window seats, which are clearly not just there to let light in. They're there for leisure. They're there for people to enjoy views. And that's something we can forget about, really, in this mundane age of double-glazed windows and veluxes and so on. Does that shift from windows being used as um, defence, as being used for their function, into being something decorative, tell us something about the change in society during which it happened? I think so, that we get to a period where it's more settled. We've had the the Norman Conquest. We're in the medieval period, which is when people start to have more leisure, there is a rising middle class. And that really comes to the fore, for example, with Tudor buildings such as Hardwick Hall, where the windows absolutely dominate the facade and they're there to express the status and wealth of Bess of Hardwick, not just to look up at the facade, but looking out at all the land that she owned. This is partly to do as well with changes in glass technology, even in the late 16th century, which is when Hardwick Hall was built, actually the view wouldn't have been so great because glass was very tainted, I suppose, by um, metal oxide. So the original windows there would have been a kind of greenish colour. But certainly by the Georgian times, you can see windows that the sash windows that technology has developed to have these almost 
completely transparent panes of glass and windows are being used in a different way then you know we don't really think about this with sash windows these days but by controlling the opening at the top and the bottom that's how you would control the flow of hot air in the building so not only were they these lovely to look at and transparent windows they also performed a role in heating technology and also this is something interesting that uh, someone we interviewed for the program brought up they were very friendly places that there was this idea that you know as people walk past you in the street in this increasingly urban society you would swish your window up and uh say hello and you'd be chatting through the windows and so on which some which which brings to mind this lovely picture of georgian urban society mm. i wanted to you, you talked about hardwick hall there and i wanted to talk more about that example if you don't mind because it's so fascinating mm. we talked a bit about how it was a display of wealth but i'm interested in the in the idea too that the windows were a display of power can you talk us through how that was the case You'd have to be an extremely powerful and wealthy person to have a house like Hardwick Hall, which, let us not forget, is the new Hardwick Hall that only nine years before she started building this one, there was the now old hall just next door to it, which was allowed to become, a, in time, a picturesque ruin. Yes, Bess of Hardwick not only had built the house she also actually owned the glass factory which made the windows for Hardwick Hall so as a woman she was second only in wealth to Elizabeth I and she was saying not only can I build this beautiful house I can also assert my authority entirely over the manufacture of the windows she changed the axis of the great hall so that it was um so rather than you entering on the long side of the great hall you would enter through the middle of the shorter side and she, so she, what she was showing and what the windows were part of was that you that she as a powerful wealthy woman could change the entire architecture of the house and in fact she she not only changed that axis she had behind those enormous windows these incredible rooms the the high chamber which you had to reach by ascending rather breathlessly flights and flights of stairs once you got to the top you would be presented with this array of windows in this incredible room and if that weren't enough you go through the door and there is the longest long gallery in Britain behind with this wall of windows. So it was not just about showing off status. It was about saying, I have complete control over the building, over the innovations in this building. And if you come in here, you're going to be more impressed than you were when you were outside looking up at these splendid glittering panes. It's such an incredible example. Um, and I think another example that listeners might have in mind when we talk about windows is stained glass windows. Um, what did you explore in terms of that particular example? 
We look specifically at cathedrals because, you know, you think of stained glass, you think of cathedrals. And an obvious candidate was Gloucester Cathedral because their east window is the size of a tennis court and was said to be the largest in the world when it was built in the mid-14th century. And the technology behind this is really interesting. It came from France. We weren't actually manufacturing stained glass in Britain. And so these panes were made using technology that I think was highly protected um, made in France and then these panes would be shipped over to Bristol in these barges with the the panes protected by layers of straw and it was in Bristol that we we had the glass cutters that actually created the windows and the technology behind stained glass is quite incredible because to create those colours it's slightly counterintuitive you use sort of different metal oxides to create these different colours um, but they don't quite make the colours you expect so that would have required a great deal of craftsmanship to produce. We were also interested that they, I mean, they used anything to make it and they used urine, for example, to produce the rich gold. I always liked that thought, looking up at these grand windows and these golden-haired angels. And what was so fascinating, really, about Gloucester Cathedral East Window was that not only was the craft, craftsmanship of the window incredible, to be able to support such a window required the latest innovations in Gothic architectural technology and the finest stonework tracery. So it's not just about the glass, it's about everything that goes into supporting it. In the Second World War, actually, the window had to be dismantled in its entirety for its safety. And I like to imagine the the total fear of those people dismantling this tennis court-sized window to shift over in, into a safe hiding place. And another thought about stained glass, actually, is thinking about the 1930s and, you know, the Art Deco period, in particular the sunbursts and the sun rays and the sailing ships, and how by the 1930s, the post-First World War lifestyle aspiration of cleanliness, hygiene, health, sun, ocean liners, and so on, had become stained glass in every semi-detached Tudor Beethan residence in the country. So, so in a way, that symbolism tells us as much about that era as the symbolism from the stained glass windows we see in cathedrals. Is is that fair to say? Yes, I think so. The cathedral stained glass windows are those what were called the poor man's Bible, which conveyed Bible stories, um, conveyed that notion of God at the top of this hierarchy all the way down to the peasants at the very bottom, whereas this mass availability of stained glass in the, in, in the 1930s speaks to that growing industrial, mass-produced availability um, of stained glass once such a status good, the availability 
to all. And particularly in the 1930s, there was, well, prior to the uh, Great Depression, of course, uh, I think there was this idea of a, a new hope of the sun rays of a world that was available and on offer. Still to come on the History Extra podcast. But a broken window can be a sign of something or it can be the start of something far more serious in terms of in terms of community societal breakdown. We don't always realize just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash history extra. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. We've talked a bit about technology and a bit about symbolism. Are there any sort of uh, episodes from social history in which windows have played a pivotal role in their own right? Yes. If we think about windows as being pivotal in their own right, there is nothing more pivotal than the great defenestration of Prague, which was a trigger for the Thirty Years' War. Some Catholic royal governors were chucked out of the window by the Protestants, supported by uh, the estates of the time, who were primarily Protestant. The royal governors were backed by the Holy Roman Empire. And so, you know, this great clash results in the defenestration of these royal governors. Now, it depends whose story you want to believe. The Protestants say that they were saved by a fortuitous dung heap that was passing in a cart at the time. The Catholics say they were saved by angels that appeared and lifted them up. Who who knows what the truth is? But, but what is so interesting is that in that single act, that triggered what became probably the most disastrous war in European history, 
between 8 million and 11 million people lost their lives because of this power struggle that was going on between the Protestant estates and the Holy Roman Empire, backed by, for example, Spain. And England was involved in this. They were into it up to their muddy little knees because James had decided that he was going to marry his daughter off to a Protestant and his son off to a Catholic. And despite him wanting to be seen as Rex Pacificus, the King of Peace, he tried then to embroil himself in European diplomacy and some tens of thousands of English soldiers got involved in the war. And James failed really because he because he was criticised for not supporting his Protestant son-in-law, Frederick, and his daughter, who were overthrown as king and queen of Bohemia by the Catholic hordes. And his attempts at kind of diplomatic-type negotiations were seen as just not being strong enough against the great Catholic forces, particularly of Spain. This led to fracture between Parliament and the monarchy and, of course, eventually to our civil war. There's a whole chain of events that are set off by this one incident. Yes, and I would just like to bring in here that defenestrations don't always end in great wars and millions of deaths because round about 1637, Henrietta Maria... Uh, was extremely upset because her court dwarf, Sir Geoffrey Hudson, somehow fell out of a window and there were great great worries about her pregnancy. But luckily, Sir Geoffrey survived. He survived that anyway. He, was, uh, he got into a lot of trouble later on for getting involved in a sword fight and he survived the Civil War, but he died a broken man. Um, there's another social history episode which I believe you got a family connection to, which is um, something that happened in the early 20th century. Can you just talk us through that? Yes, my great-grandmother, Charlotte Shaw, and also her sister Mabel were suffragettes at the beginning of the 20th century. They actually lived in Manchester, so they were part of the movement there. However, my Great Granny Charlotte decided that she was going to be an early adopter of the window smashing campaign. So she went down to London. She was first of all involved in um, a protest and there are photographs of women being manhandled and actually injured by police. She was taken to court with that along with a number of other suffragettes and they all carried their luggage thinking right, we're going to prison. However, the Home Secretary decided that these women were not going to be martyrs to the suffragette cause, didn't offer any evidence, and they were sent off with their little suitcases. So the very next day, Great Granny thought, right, she got a brick in her muff, which if people don't know, were um, uh, it was like a fur 
tube that you put your hands into she did she held the brick in there and she asked a policeman in her politest voice please could you tell me where John Burns office is he was a cabinet minister at the time and upon being told she chucked she chucked the brick through his window and promptly got sent to Holloway we still have the prison knife actually from Holloway but that was very early in the campaign which then led to broken windows all over the place and it was you know better broken windows than broken promises that was inscribed on many of the bricks and stones because there had been a bill the conciliation bill which had it been passed would have given up to one million women the vote but it, through a complicated series of events which led to a general election being called, it, it just kind of got put to one side. So, of course, women had to protest in the only ways they could through smash windows and later on, obviously, through hunger strikes in prison. Mm. Um, do you think it tells us something that smashing windows was chosen as one of the methods by which they expressed this protest? I do think that windows are symbolic and this is nowhere better shown than in the broken windows thesis, which has become extremely popular now amongst criminologists. Uh, The broken windows thesis is that if you ignore a single broken window on a street, that that starts a rot in the community. So then there are more acts of vandalism, people start to feel unsafe. But that, I think, is what makes windows so central, um, not only to the facade of a building and letting light, light in and so on, but a broken window can be a sign of something or it can be the start of something far more serious in terms of in terms of community societal breakdown i wanted to talk a bit then about how windows have changed role um through i suppose into the 20th century um and particularly their use in such modernist architecture as high-rise tower blocks what's the story behind their use there Le Corbusier called the history of architecture the history of windows. And he also said that the history of architecture was the history of the struggle for light. So if we think back to those dark roundhouses with openings to let the smoke out and think think forward to the middle of the 20th century... And those modernist buildings, which, for example, Le Corbusier created in Marseille, we see such a difference. Part of this was technological, um, through the use of through the use of concrete. These exterior walls were no longer supporting walls, which allowed there to be absolutely huge windows, wall-length windows, which slid open and closed. Um, and so he really went for windows and their light-giving properties, which which um, 
resonates with that early 20th century love for light and the association of sunlight with hygiene and health. However, there is a darker side to this story where, you know, we we can think of these amazing modernist buildings with these wall-length windows. Actually, in those some of those Marseille buildings that that icon of modernism, Le Corbusier, created, um, many of the children's bedrooms were windowless because that was what the architecture demanded. So sometimes I think those modernist spectacles, because they really are spectacles, if we if we go forward in time to the high-rise buildings of the of the late 50s onwards, they are a bit fur coat and no knickers. And that really shows up in the later 20th century when so many of them suffered from problems of damp, problems of infestation and massive social problems. Uh, Children were not healthy living in them. People were not happy and they ended up being demolished. And we we, I hope, are returning to single-family units and smaller blocks of flats because actually they might look good when they're built, but they're extremely expensive to keep going. Mm. Are there any other stories or, or examples from your documentary or from your research that you think are particularly illuminating? There's a really good story, actually, that didn't make it to the programme. Um, and I can't remember when it was. It was sometime in medieval times. Um, and this this says something about the quality of the glass at the time, that a man was taken to court for um, nosing on his neighbour. And as a result, he was told that he had to glass in his window so that he couldn't see out but that does really lead to those thoughts of um you know what are windows for they're so lovely to look out but there's always that little fear isn't there that there might be someone peeking in that's really interesting um and i'm I'm fascinated by this idea that windows in a house or in a building somehow reflect us as humans and the way in which we interact with the world or see the world. Do you think there's anything else that we can learn from from this this history, I suppose? I think think part of it, yeah, is to do with changing fashions and changing trends in what windows are for. I know where I used to live in the South Wales Valleys, there's very much the idea of windows are for displaying outwards. So you have your blinds or your lace curtains, then you have the windowsill that is visible to the outside world. And they are like little mantelpieces with fresh flowers, statues, ornaments, and so on. And that suggests, uh, as the South Wales Valleys are, that they're they're very outward looking, they're very friendly, people are really chatty. And that in turn puts me in mind of the Dutch, where there is 
there is very much this notion of you do not draw your curtains at night. I don't know if you've ever taken a boat down the river in Amsterdam and there's there are these gloriously lit up windows. Lighting shots in the Netherlands are incredible. You know, you're not just getting your simple white hat shape sort of lampshade there. You're getting these incredible creations and there's this idea that you have nothing to hide whereas in this country I know lace curtains are still sort of laughed at as are and I've been desperate to talk about them pelmets but they were very much the fashion of the time whereas now people have wooden blinds or nice white shutters so they do speak of fashions of the time but I do think there is something about whether we live in an extroverted or an introverted society and I don't think we can talk about this as being Britain wide for example um, but but more local than that that there will be a culture as in the valleys of displaying your family and your taste to the world or you shut it all in. Finally, when people are sat looking out of their own window, perhaps in their home or in their office, how would you like them to think about this longer history of the window? I think perhaps not just to think about the window as a frame for looking out of, but the window as a thing in itself which has performed so many different functions uh, symbolically and practically throughout history from, um, you know, something to shoot arrows out of and kill people, something to chuck people out of, some, something to smash, not just violent things like that. And, of course, you know, uh, in the medieval and Tudor towns to to chuck your uh, chamber pot out of um but as something that isn't just this mundane double glazed object but something that represents something about society not just about what individuals want to say about themselves to the outside world or to visitors but also about status more generally about their societal role um that and about their symbolic role. You know, if we think about cathedrals, about that medieval cosmology, if we look at modernist windows and that cosmology, really, which was about health, about the health-giving powers of sunlight, that they're not just something to look out of. That was Rachel Hurdley. The Hidden History of the Window is out now and available to listen to on Catch-Up on the BBC Sounds app and website. Rachel also wrote a feature on this subject for the November issue of BBC History magazine. That's on sale now and also includes features on George III, Medieval Trials by Combat, Second World War Tank Battalions and the Turbulent Stuart Age. Thanks for listening. This podcast was produced by Ben Hewitt, Jack Bateman and Brittany Colley. Tune in again on Friday when Greg Jenner will be talking about his new book, Ask a Historian. Mm-hmm.